1: the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah.
0: Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 145 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, William Duval from Alice in Chains, I want to let you know we're taking Cocktails in the War Room, my video show, out on the road. Coming up May 6th from 5 to 9, I'll be at the Vernon Hill American Legion Post 435 in Worcester with regimental whiskey, specialty cocktails, and the rifle author, Andy Biggio. We'll be doing a special episode of Cocktails in the War Room. And you can also win concert tickets to see the Brett Michaels Party Gras, Jelly Roll, Ghost, and Nickelback. That's the American Legion Post 435 in Worcester, Massachusetts at 267 Providence Street. And for more details, check out the concert calendar at MistressCary.com. My guest this week is William Duval, the lead singer from Alice in Chains, who recently collaborated on a new version of the song This Is Mongol by the Mongolian folk metal band The Who. William and I talked about how he moved as a teenager from the punk music mecca of Washington, D.C., to the barren desert of punk music in Atlanta. We talked about his songwriting inspiration, the defining moment that he saw the decline of Western civilization, part two. We talked about the design process of his signature guitar and the inspiration that came as a young kid from Jimi Hendrix and his cousin. We also talked about the resurgence of vinyl and so much more. So allow me to introduce you to William Duval from Alice in Chains. Mr. William Duval. how are you?
2: Oh, I'm fine, thank you. It's great to be here.
0: First question I always ask, because sometimes you guys don't know where you are, do you know where you are and where are you? <laughs>
2: I do know where I am. I am at home.
0: Oh, nice! A little break, or did you spend too yeah. much time there during COVID, and you're kind of itching to get back out of there?
2: Oh, you know, no. I'm glad to be here. Um, you know, we did uh, la- last year was a busy year. I um, I got to finally uh, tour Europe and the UK um, for my first solo album, the the all acoustic album, One Alone. So I finally got to do that one man show tour um throughout Europe and 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 England United United Kingdom and uh that had been postponed three or four times <laughs> because of all the shutdowns. So got that done finally in spring of last year and then Alice did a tour of the United States in the late summer early fall of last year. So it was it was quite a busy year and um it's nice to it's nice to be back home now.
0: It was very interesting how comfortable some people got spending that much time at home and how uncomfortable some people got having that much downtime. Did you discover uh, new hobbies that weren't music related when you had all of that time off? Because for musicians, that's a new concept to be home that much.
2: It is. It's the longest that uh, I had been home um, continuously since I was probably fifteen. Um so did I discover new hobbies it was more for me it was more of a chance to catch up on things that had long been sort of uh you know set aside um and uh now I did learn some new skill sets I suppose because you know there was that uh era of live streaming that a lot of us went through you know and so I I actually would uh, do acoustic live streams from right here in this room um I did a number of those and um so I'd never done that before and that was cool um
0: it became a little so more a, technologically advanced
2: right right there were yes exactly and so um that you know that was that was that was one byproduct of that time and uh and a welcome one that was good um and, and I enjoyed it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it was uh, its definitely interesting. I'm, I'm glad that uh, we finally uh, sort of moved past that and I was able to, you know, get back out on the road in 22.
0: Rock that fans was... need concerts. I think that was something we all learned when we couldn't Absolutely. go to them is how Absolutely. much our community is dependent on us being together and being able to share that experience of live music.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely right. Um, it's essential. Uh, I think it's essential for, for humanity really to be able to gather. I mean, regardless of the nature of the event, you know, the event, whether it's even, um, musical or regardless of any musical genre, it's just, it's, uh, I think it's necessary for our sanity and survival. So, uh, I was, Really happy to see how many people showed up um, both to my Europe-UK tour and also to uh, the Alice shows. That was that was extremely gratifying, both of those.
0: It seems to be something where you get bit when you're young and you're mm-hmm. just a music person or you're not. And Dave Grohl has been very vocal about kind of growing up in that D.C. punk music scene and you had a similar upbringing. Can you talk about what it was like growing up in that music scene in D.C. for you?
2: Well, you know, I, I was born in Washington and did spend my a my, uh, good part of my childhood there. But then when I was 14, just as I was discovering the amazing scene going on in my backyard, my family had to leave and move to Atlanta. And so I had to leave everything and everyone I knew. And I also had to leave, as I said, this amazing thing that I was just sort of discovering that was happening where I probably would have been able to um, immerse myself into, into a, a, a new scene and get a bunch of new friends. But as it was, we had to go. And so I moved from the Washington area to Atlanta, where nothing like that was going on, um, but that became its own blessing because um, that that left me to sort of j- help jumpstart it, and so uh, we sort of my friends and I kind of uh, you know really we 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 kick we kicked it off here in terms of hardcore punk in Atlanta. Um, and, uh, that came with everything you might imagine <laughs> from the reaction and resistance to, uh, you know, the, uh, that, you know, it came with all the challenges and all the glory that you might imagine, but it was, it was really great. And, uh, looking back, <clears throat> I wouldn't change it. It's
0: really I interesting. It. I just had that conversation with Mark Tremonti and he mm-hmm. talked about, coming from Detroit in this amazing music scene that he was born into. And then his family moved to Florida where there was no kind of music scene. And that kind of springboarded him into becoming a musician himself and kind of defined the musician that he became. It sounds like you had the same experience because of the move.
2: Right. Um, I mean, I had already been playing guitar for a number of years by the time I turned 14 and and we had to move. Um, I started when I was eight. So I had been jamming along with records and that sort of thing. Um, and the occasional few and far between opportunity to maybe jam with other people would arise here and there, but mostly it was just me woodshedding in my room, <laughs> jamming with all my favorites, pretending I was part of their band, you know? Um, whether it was Hendrix or you know Miles Davis or Chic or Zeppelin, whoever. And uh, so when we moved, that was right as I was getting to the point of thinking like I should, I I I can't wait anymore. I've got to start my own band. I've got to write my own songs. And like by then I'd seen the movie The Decline of Western Civilization. It came to Washington. And I begged my grandfather, can we please, please, please go see it? And he took me, much to his credit, and sat through that whole thing. And <laughs> my grandfather, my grandfather watching the germs, you know, watching Darby crash on the screen, you know, uh, trying to make sense of all that. And after we came out of the theater, he was just like, well, hoss, I did not seen it all now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was it was so funny. But, you know, the reason I really wanted to go to that film, see that film is... um was because i had started hearing about what was happening in LA and I, and specifically I'd, I'd started hearing about black flag. And, uh, and so when they, they're, they're like the first band that gets to do their segment in the movie. And, and as soon as they came on the screen, I was like, Oh yeah, that's it. That's what I've been waiting for. That's it right there. And I got to do that. And, uh, so that's what I did, you know, then, then we, my family had to move and I was, you know, transplanted into this, situation where there was really nothing going on except, you know, uh, bar bands, you know, a lot of still a lot of Southern rock there had started. Um, the the Athens scene had sort of started with some of the college rock, but there was nothing like what I wanted to do. And uh, so, yeah, that that's where I really learned what I was made of and uh, you know because you had to meet people you had to meet people you had to meet other kids in order to even get to the point where you might be able to form a band and um so that's where i really uh you know was forced to get it together and um you know the high school i was put into when we first got here was one uh that could not have been more difficult to do the kind of thing I was doing. You know, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was an 80% African-American high school, probably 85%, I would say, and, uh, run by the football team. You know, those kids, they didn't want nothing to do with what I was about or what I was talking about or any of that. And I was just sort of, you know, more on the, um, the bookish, kind of nerdy musicianly side, you know, and so there were really only two cats in the whole school who would give me the time of day. One of them was in the marching band on the snare drum and the other one had never touched a musical instrument before, but he was just a cool kind of stoner kid. And that's who I formed my first band. with.
0: <laughs> Wait, so you you were a musician in school, but you were not a member of the marching band. I there, no. There's a whole group of us that are in music now that mm-hmm. are all graduates of the marching band era, proud clarinet right. player over here.
2: You right bypass
0: <laughs> the marching band?
2: I, uh, yes, I bypassed the marching band. The marching band bypassed me. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was I was all about the guitar. was all about feedback into the amp and all of that kind of thing. There wasn't much room for me in the marching band, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, but again, the marching band did play a role because I, I managed to convince the snare drummer <laughs> to come to my house and you know listen to the Bad Brains cassette that I had, and you know, and even then you know listen to early versions of my first forays into songwriting, and uh, and that's what got it going. And then we started getting gigs in the city, and that the it, things started snowballing from there, you know, and um, some people know about my group neon christ um well this band i'm talking about forming out of my high school was before that it was my first band avoc but avoc getting gigs in the city is what led to neon christ and then led to the growth of the atlanta punk scene and everything that followed so all of it was very very important and and really formative you know
0: you picked up the (laughs) guitar really young and Mm -hmm. It's something that comes up on the show all the time about whether or not music ability is learned or whether it's genetic. So do you come from a musical family? Is that how you picked up a guitar so young?
2: I don't, I mean, I, I, my, uh, my family appreciated music. Um, well, actually my paternal, my, my paternal grandmother really did want to be a songwriter. But I didn't know about that until, you know, I'd already started playing. She, um, you know, sort of uh, suffocated her dream. You know, life happens, right? And a lot of us have to, you know, a lot of people have to give up on what they really want to do. But I suppose that may have factored in to, you know, there may have been a genetic thing going on there. But it wasn't like this pronounced thing. Like some people they talk about like, oh yeah, my family, we're always sing-alongs in the living room. You know, <laughs> like, you know, we always were, there was always a campfire and a song, you know I mean? I, I don't come from that. Or, uh, or you know, jam sessions, just people, musicians just coming by all the time. And I, I didn't grow up in any of that. But um, did you
0: have music on? Like, I, no one in my family plays instruments, but my mm-hmm. family had music on all the time in the house.
2: Well my mother loved uh Carole King and Roberta Flack and and um you know so so I do remember being 5 years old and hearing you know the Tapestry album on like virtually every day for about a year and a half <laughs> <laughs> you know and and I do remember um you know I rem- I do remember the early Roberta Flack uh records because my mother actually used to see Roberta when she was Roberta's from the DC area and she used to play clubs there before she got signed. I mean, and uh, so my mother and her her best girlfriend would always go to see Roberta um, when she was just starting out. And so she was a huge fan. And uh, so I remember things like that. But it, my the thing that really um, brought it all together for me was when my cousin Donald moved in with my mother and me when I was eight. That's what really did it. So um, where did my the guitar come always- from? Well, yeah, so my cousin Donald moves in. He brings his very small and battered but potent record collection that had, you know, everything from Roy Ayers to Santana to Weather Report, but the one that got me was Hendrix' Band of Gypsies. He had this warped, really beat up, scratched up uh, copy of the Band of Gypsies, and he put that on my little show-and-tell record player, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like... And I just, I couldn't get away from it. I just I was like, what is going on there? And I just bombarded him with all these questions. And that's what got me interested in the guitar because I just couldn't believe it. I was like, he's making all those sounds with the guitar? Wow, you know? And Donald was great because he, he was really, um, he was really gifted with what I call ecstatic like listening. He would, he just loved music so much and he was a keyboardist himself. And he just would listen to the listen to records so intensely and and if you know every little sound that would happen that would catch him he would "Did, you hear, that? did you hear that and then he would run the needle back you know or some phrase would happen he'd sing the phrase and then say man did you check that out check that out or something happening way in the background he'd be like man did you hear that little thing that happened way back there and it it really just fired my imagination and um gave me I think the very best listening training and ear training and uh and you talk about genetics i probably was gifted with a good ear i don't i don't know how much you can really teach about that things like pitch and all that when i was by the time i was nine i could scat sing the whole band of gypsies album all the solos everything i still can um and so once you can hear things right and kind of mirror it in some form or fashion, even if it's just, like I said, kind of humming or scatting it along, you can play it usually, you know? So I finally dug this, uh, really terrible nylon string acoustic out of my grandmother's basement and started plucking around in that. And I got good enough on that thing, which was again, the mile high action off the fretboard. I mean, just, just terrible in every way. But I got good enough on that, and I was serious enough and persistent enough, like that. My cousin took notice, and and he ended up joining the Navy because it was he was at that age. I Was like, what are you going to do with your life, you know, son, you know? And with his first paycheck from the Navy, he bought me a brand new '77 Fender Mustang from Chuck Levin's Music in Wheaton, Maryland, and that is what really got me going. And he showed me how to wire it through the stereo. By that time, I graduated to a little Sears stereo. And he wired it up where, where he somehow <laughs> jerry-rigged five speakers off this little rinky-dink stereo. And he taught me how to wire the guitar through it to be my first amplifier to play along with the records more effectively. And um, eventually, I got a little uh, Ampeg solid-state amplifier. And But then I I was off to the races at that point, you know. Where uh, would we be without those Uh,
0: nylon string guitars in the Sears catalog? So many careers were launched from those.
2: So wild, isn't it? I I, I hear that story a lot, too. And it is remarkable (laughs) how many guitarists got started seemingly on the exact same guitar.
0: (laughs) Do you still have that guitar that your cousin bought you?
2: you know regrettably I don't uh. that that is probably the biggest regret I have in in the endless cycle of gear that comes and goes in musicians' lives you know you get everything from you know, well I, I want to you know trade up you know to like oh you know I'm, oh, I'm on hard times I gotta pawn this or what all that stuff we go through but that's the one thing that I really wish I'd hung on to and and I just didn't and it, it kills me to this day I really wish I had that guitar. Yeah. Do you
0: remember the first song that you wrote that was actually a song?
2: I remember the first melody that I got together on, on my own. And it sort of um, became, it was like a little melodic figure. And it, and it was long enough to where you knew that there was intention behind it. It was that sort of thing. And uh, so I still remember that and i do remember the some of the early songs that i started writing when i got down to um, atlanta and and was trying to you know get material together for that first band for avoc i remember uh, yeah i remember some of those i some of them i wish i didn't but, <laughs> <laughs> but i but i do i uh, i remember uh, most if not all of them
0: i spent mm-hmm. some time talking to Jerry during the pandemic he and I sat down Mm -hmm. and talked for a while about um, the songwriting process because it functions differently for every songwriter and like I said I grew up in a music loving family but with no ability whatsoever and so I love being able to climb through you guys' brains to figure out how it works for you because for every songwriter it's different so how does it work for you? Is it melody first, lyric first, riff first? He told me how he sings riffs into his phone.
2: Oh, I do that too. Um, I've got thousands of them uh, in, in my phone on the uh, little message recorder. Um, there is no one way for me. Um, it can It can be triggered from a word or a line somebody says, like just a, a phrase or a sentence someone speaks or it could come from a riff. Um, the, the very best things happen all at once. And it's like a record playing in my head that just hasn't been made yet. Um, those are the, those tend to be the best things and the easiest things, um, because they, they write themselves and it's, it's just like a message that comes to you and you just have to, quick enough, react quickly enough in order to get it down in some way where you can remember it. I mean, obviously you can't, you can't always, um, you can't always, uh, you know, uh, create an entire production (laughs) in seconds right off the bat, you know, Um, but you can at least get something into the phone or whatever. It used to be a tape recorder, but something that allows you to remember the rest of the entire production and a lot of times a lot of my f- sort of uh recorded messages to myself will have things like production notes in them or it'll have <laughs> like i'll just speak what i what the idea is uh, as well as playing it you know
0: not only do you have to get these kind of ideas and squirrel them away on your phone before you forget But what's the process for you of deciding like, well, this is a solo track. This is a song that's eventually going to be electric versus this is going to stay acoustic or, you know, this is this is for Alice. Like, how do you decide?
2: Yeah, it um, sometimes it's very clear to me uh, where something belongs. Other times it's not so clear. And um, because. I am recording so many messages Over such a long span of time, like there can be, there can be, there can be weeks where nothing happens, but then there can be a week where there's like 20 things getting inputted into the phone. Um, Because of that, I will sometimes denote, you know, where I think it belongs. And sometimes those notes will... Allow for multiple options. Like it, this could be for this or this or that. You know, it'll, it'll, I'll just go ahead and denote it that way right from the jump so that months or even years later, when I'm going back through all these hundreds and hundreds of things um, to see what, if anything, is worthwhile, it'll all come back to me like what I was thinking at the time, hopefully. And uh, and by that time, it will also have hopefully become more apparent like, okay, if I gave myself a couple of options like this could go here or here, well, now I know it really goes here, you know. So that's sort of my my process, I guess, with with regard to uh, those messages, <laughs> those endless messages to myself.
0: Music fans always debate like, you know, best guitar player, greatest album. And when you Mm -hmm. talk to music lovers, it's hard to say, oh, your favorite this or that. So this is why I phrased this question this way. From a Mm -hmm. songwriting perspective, can you give me an example of a song that you covet that is so good as an example of songwriting perfection that you wish you wrote Mm -hmm. it, but you got to break it down and tell me why you think it's such a great example of perfect songwriting?
2: Oh, gosh, I love that question. Um. One example would be Smokey Robinson, The Tracks of My Tears. It's just so beautiful. There's a lot of internal rhyming within the verses and the chorus. The phrasing of the melody is so great. And then the melody itself is so brilliant all throughout, all throughout. And then you get to the production of that record. It's just a home run on every, every level. And, uh, that is one that I, uh, look at as that's about as good as it gets. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Stevie wonder has, has songs like that as well. Um, (laughs) too many to name really. Um, gosh, But yeah, there are things on Songs in the Key of Life where I just go, I just can't even believe how great this is, you know? (laughs) um, um, Bob Dylan, It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding. That's another one where I'm astounded by that piece of work. Just again, the word flow, the barrage of language coming at you, and it doesn't make obvious linear sense, but it completely makes sense in a way. And you understand so much of what he's what he's talking about uh, even without some sort of, you know, linear thread of logic or linear narrative. It, it, it surpasses and transcends all of that yet still conveys such power. And it's so difficult to do that. I mean, people can write in an abstract way, but it often really stays in the abstract. And a lot of times, um, whatever emotion they're trying to convey will come from other things within the track, like the music or the, you know, the way it's produced or the way somebody's singing it. But with Dylan, all he had was his voice and the guitar and the, in the language and the, and the chords and convey such power without that sort of linear quality very difficult to do very difficult um and uh yeah I mean that's that's one where every time I hear it I'm just like whoa man and he actually he actually was able to do that to me again with some of his most recent work that that song he came out with a couple years ago murder most foul same kind of thing I'm like wow this cat is damn near 80 years old still just ripping faces off man like that that is also an astounding piece of work and they you know separated by almost 60 years from the first thing it's like he <laughs> tunes into something in the
0: universe and picks these ideas out of the ether yeah
2: yeah and can and can connect so many threads into whatever the message is he's trying to convey but without always doing it in an obvious kind of uh you know pedantic way you know it's it's like again that's that's a gift that's 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 a gift but also honed through extensive dedication to craft that's where the two things really come together um yeah so that he he is a great example of, of of records that i covet and obviously the beatles have plenty of those as well I, I i would have to say i mean they're there you could just go on all day about them you know uh and and some of their individual works as well i mean mccartney is he's he's one of the geniuses of all time and and lennon was such an emotionally raw and open person and performer um they've got they've got an endless list of things but i will say in my life that 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 thing that's that's another one that's up there with smokey where you're just going wow this is just a great song and it's a great record you know sometimes you can have one or the other but that these are examples where you have both um and uh yeah i'm i'm always i'm always moved when i hear that song you know and i and i i, I would have to say i might go there with something like a day in the life as well Though in that one, obviously, the production is a huge part of that, too. But because it was so groundbreaking, I mean, I I may include something like that as well.
0: Tyler, uh, um, Tyler Connolly from Theory of a Dead Man told me he got to listen to the original Masters of that song at Abbey mm-hmm. Road. And they turned it way up at the very end. And right at the end of all that sustain in A Day in the Life, someone turned their chair and it squeaked and someone goes, shh. And they left it in the record.
2: That's awesome. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, I listen to the Beatles because I. that's the greatest gift that I, I say my mom gave me is that love of the mm-hmm. Beatles, like mm-hmm. from a very early age. And when I saw that thing that, that McCartney did with Rick Rubin.
2: Mm, yeah, I saw that too.
0: It totally changed how I listen to the Beatles because it's so obvious Now, But I never put the two things together about how McCartney grew up in such a stereotypical, like, wholesome family life. And so he brings this positivity into music. And Lennon Mm -hmm. had the exact opposite, which brought his cynicism. And it's that, the the light and the dark together in Beatles music that makes it what it is. And until he explained it... I had to rewind it and listen to it like four times, and I was like, "Then I go back and listen to Beatles music, and it was all there—the happy mm-hmm. melody and the and the the sad lyrics, or the sad melody and the uplift. Like it's mm-hmm. that balance that made them so brilliant, and I totally missed it until he talked to Rick Rubin <laughs> about it.
2: Oh, that's great! No, he always uh, uh, that he always tells that story about the song uh, getting better. And how he's taught me, it's getting better all the time. And then Lennon comes in with "couldn't get any worse," you know, <laughs> "couldn't get no worse." <laughs> and that, and he's like, "Yeah, that sums our our whole relationship yeah, up, right there." Exactly. You know? But uh, now you're right. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on there. Um, it goes back to their childhood. And it's pretty remarkable how they manifested all of it. And and you put all of that talent and that inherent, those inherent qualities they had in personalities, but also combine it with that drive and that wanting that they had to make something of themselves out of that post-war era. I mean, it's kind of one of those things like that that old saying, uh, you know, uh, about an idea whose time has come, like how it's uh, nothing can stop it. Uh, They were one of those. (laughs) They were one of those.
0: One of the things (laughs) that we've all learned with the advent of this amazing digital technology that we use every day and don't even think twice about is that rock music and the love of rock music is universal in, in the strangest places, which brings me to your collaboration with the who, because I'm assuming that if someone had told the teenager in Atlanta, that someday you'd be collaborating with these dudes from Mongolia on this, on these tribal instruments, you would have been like, where's Mongolia?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You're gonna make a record with the direct descendants of Genghis Khan. How do you feel about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um you're right. I I uh I would have found that uh difficult to believe, but uh here we are and it's it's great. <laughs> tell it's me really great.
0: Tell me what it was like to I, I had a chance to interview the guys through an interpreter when the Retaliators movie came out. And regardless of language, their enthusiasm for rock music, but also their enthusiasm about their culture and the excitement about being able to share it in a real way with the rest of the world comes through. So tell me about what it was like to work with those guys.
2: Well, it was it was an honor and a pleasure and a a challenge, but a welcome one. And I say challenge only because um, I had such respect for their pride in their culture and, um, and their country and their history that my question to myself was, how can I contribute to this and compliment this without stepping on it, you know? Um, and, uh, that would, that took some doing and redoing, you know, uh, of that song. But eventually I think we've arrived at a great place and, um, yeah, I, I, I wanted that, you know, we're doing an East meets West thing here. But what I really wanted to uh, focus on was the commonality of humanity, right? Because we all want the same things at the end of the day. We'd all like to um, and hopefully build on and continue what previous generations we're able to achieve and we want to hopefully make them proud and we want to hopefully leave something for the future generations to uh also look back on and be proud of and give them a foundation to build and so um they are uh sort of consistently honoring thousands of years of their culture just by the work that they're doing, Um, but those same basic human desires reside in all of us wherever we come from. So um, by continually coming back to that that sort of basic inherent truth, I was able to uh, get to get this record to the place where it is now. I'm very proud of it. I'm very, very proud of, of, of how it all came together in the end. They
0: you know? talked to me about the difficulty of touring with some of those instruments and, <laughs> and having yeah, to I'm like, dead. to get parts from home because oh it's not God. like they can just go to guitar center.
2: Exactly.
0: And get horsehair, yeah. you know, right. bows for these amazing Mongolian right. string instruments that, the logistics yeah, exactly. involved is a little bit more complicated.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You're not just you're not just uh, contacting the Ernie Ball rep for your string. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's a little more complicated than that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure I can only imagine what they must go through from time to time. Uh, but it's really great, you know, and I and I I saw um, a little piece of. Of this uh documentary, sort of a video documentary on them. And and in one of the scenes, one of the guys is talking about the the the, the violin, the bowed instrument, the modern court, I believe it's called. And uh he's he says that there's an old saying in their country that no home is complete without one of those, you know, and and a home that that only a home that has one of these modern courts is, is is complete. So I mean that, that says a lot. That tells you <laughs> a lot about uh how much uh not only they value their uh their traditional music, but how the how it seems that all of their their fellow uh Mongolians feel about you know, the instruments and the and and the traditional music, how important it is. If you say like, wow, no home is complete without this instrument, even if it's just hanging on the wall, you know. I was like, wow, that, that almost be, that gives it sort of a talismanic quality, you know, the the instrument itself. You just need to have it uh, around you. That's pretty powerful.
0: Well, look <clears> at what <throat> happened having a nylon Sears, a nylon string Sears acoustic guitar in your grandmother's basement. Look at what happened to you.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's so true. It's so true. And now I have, you know, uh, a few more guitars than that. <laughs> and, now you have your own and, guitar. And they, i do that's right and i call it the talisman for that reason um because i wanted something that would make me feel um and keep me aware of the power of the instruments that are important to us you know how much meaning they can bring to our lives again even just by being in the room with us, you know, like <clears throat> one of my talismans is sitting right here a few feet away from me and I just feel better for it, <laughs> you know? And when I, and when I actually, you know, get to play it, obviously that's, that's, well, then, you know, that's the whole game, you know, but, um, but yeah, I'm very proud of that guitar and uh, so thankful that uh, I was able to get that together and frame us with so um, they've, they've always been just so wonderfully kind and accommodating and um you know i i had joked for years with the head of design there marcus spangler that uh you know uh he he said you know we should do a guitar we should do a guitar and i was like well as soon as i get something you know a drawing that i feel is worth even sharing with you (laughs) well you know I'll, i'll be i'll be happy to do exactly that and finally uh my wife and i were in some hotel somewhere and we had had a running joke, she and I, about. She would always say, "Babe, you should, you should, you should design a guitar based on me." <laughs> so one day we were in this hotel, and I did that. I finally just did it. I got the the hotel stationery pad, you know, and I got the the pen, you know, and I, I just started drawing some things, and and I came up with something. I thought, "Wow, you know, this this is actually not bad. This is something worth sending to Marcus." And that's, that's the talisman guitar. I'll never look
0: at it the same again.
2: <laughs> everybody, Hopefully for the better.
0: <laughs> everybody that I know that has their own signature guitar has always talked about how they learn more about wood in the process than they ever would have known otherwise, just trying to figure out exactly how they wanted their guitar to look and sound.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, I am so fortunate and thankful that Framus has one of the best storehouses of wood of any company that I've ever encountered they um because their sister company is Warwick the the base uh company the base manufacturer and so uh you know they have many years of of uh, experience with the exotic woods that go into those Warwick bases and they brought that to the Framus guitar line. And and actually the Framus guitar line predates the Warwick bass line by many years. That's a, that's been a family run company since like the 1940s. So it's got an incredible history and you will actually see old pictures of like, you know, Lennon and McCartney playing Framus guitars, you know, before they were famous. And, um, you know, it's kind of a, it's got this amazing sort of legacy that they're building on now. But uh, yeah, the, the same family still owns and runs the company. They are now passing it on to the next generation of, of young people in the family coming up. It's a beautiful thing. But yes, the wood, they are not wanting for wood. <laughs> I mean, you, you you go there and it's this incredible facility they have. And you just walk through it with your jaw dropped, you know? And, uh, I mean, from the factory to the, I mean, they have a, they almost have like a village within a village. They they're in this small town called Makna kitchen in, in near the Czech border in Germany. And they have their own compound. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of performance venues. There's the factory, there's the wood house. There's and unbelievable, but yeah, I had the pick of the litter when it came to the, the wood ended up, uh, going with, you know, kind of a mahogany maple combination, uh, which is, it, it obviously has its tradition in the great Gibson Les Paul, <laughs> the Les Paul standard specifically. And, uh, I sort of wanted the first talisman that I wanted to try to create was uh, a sort of a tribute to the black beauty Les Paul custom from the fifties. Um, the one with the humbucker. So from 57 on, and, uh, but I wanted it. The The custom is an all mahogany body. There's no maple top on it. Like with the Les Paul standard that you see Jimmy page playing or something. But I was like, let's make something that looks like custom, but has the, the, uh, the sonic qualities of the standard. So we'll give, give me a little maple cap there, you know, but we'll do the black sort of black beauty, black and gold, you know, make it have that sort of wonderful, Tuxedo look that that Les Paul was going for with the custom, and I think we got it. I I I love that guitar.
0: Does and your wife I, love it?
2: She absolutely loves okay. it. Okay. Thankfully, <laughs> I mean, I, she was the first sign off on the thing. You know what I mean? Because she saw the drawing before anybody did. She saw the drawing before I sent it to Marcus. <laughs> so once I had that, I was like, okay, I think we might be good to go here. You know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well before I let you go I want to talk about what's what's going on for the rest of this year with you. I know Jerry's out on his solo tour so what are you what are you doing the rest of the year?
2: You know, I I'm still I'm still figuring it out. I um I'm well first of all this who single coming out has just been the greatest start to a year that I could have wanted. So that's brilliant. I feel like uh there's just a lot of um wonderful sort of uh momentum already you know generating um but you know in terms of specifics going forward there are a lot of things that i still need to attend to in terms of home life things but record wise there's a lot i'd like to do in terms of going back into my own catalog and giving some attention to things that i've wanted to do for a long time I've I had a band called comes with the fall back in uh the early 2000s and uh that's actually the band that led to well that's the band that sort of jump-started my friendship with Cantrell in the first place and led to everything that's happened with Alice since right um it kind of starts with that band and I'm so proud of the records we did and I and they were recorded the old-fashioned way you know to tape and then straight you know the recorded and mixed to you know two inch to half inch and so proud of that whole catalog but it never came out on vinyl because we were in the cd era so i would take the half inch masters and that then we'd we'd go digital to do the cd releases and then they're up on the streaming platforms via digital but if those records were really made to be all analog and I'd love to finally get that going. I also want to finally put the Neon Christ records or recordings onto the digital platforms as well because we've it's never been officially released that way and we never did a CD. That band completely bypassed the digital era and even the reissue of the recordings that we put out uh with the partnership between my label and the Great Southern Lord label uh in 2021 that was still an all vinyl thing. You know, I went back to the original tapes. I supervised all the remastering and we cut a new, new set of lacquers. And we, we went, you know, we went 12 inch on that, but they never come out on CD and they've never been on any officially released in any digital platform. So I'd love to take care of that this year. So those are just a couple of things that are brewing for me. It's so crazy.
0: We're talking about the technology and, and this digital age that we live in but the fact that vinyl has come back in such a real way for real music lovers to be able to listen to their favorite albums with the warmth of vinyl it makes me so Mm -hmm. happy
2: me too it's how I started I I will always retain a love for that and um, it's been really gratifying to see it come back it's been really gratifying to see younger people embracing it too Um, it's such a great thing to hold in your hands and to keep having to hold to cherish and and it lasts for generations i've still got some of the records that donald and i were collecting back in 76 77 i still have them i still have that original copy of band of gypsies um that got me going um you know yeah and i have several represses of that same album that have been done since but but that's the beauty of it these things can be come keepsakes they can become heirlooms they can you just can't do that with a digital file you can't you just can't do that with a hard drive you know i have my mom's
0: beatles records same thing
2: there you go wouldn't give them up for
0: anything in the world
2: exactly and so to be able to get back into creating potential heirlooms for people creating them yourself that is a wonderful thing for me it's a full circle moment and um yeah. And it's just uh, a labor of love. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful thing. You know, the last record I did, I put out a solo record uh, last year um, that was recorded all live in the studio and we cut the lacquer as we were playing. So that, that's as live as you can get. I mean, you literally had, we had to go in, set up and play downside one, just like you would hear it on the record. So anything, sound that you make in between songs that's going down for posterity
0: talking about and, the squeaking chair at the end of a day in the life real. like it's thrown yeah, it in there yeah.
2: exactly you can hear me hitting the foot switch on my amp and stuff you can i mean i i gave the drummer a drum solo so i could tune up in this one bit <laughs> you know on side two but every, every single thing you have to play it down just like the side right so it's beyond even like a concert performance it's it's beyond even doing like live television I've done all that stuff I don't think there's a high wire active music quite like laying a record down straight to lacquer it's pretty amazing and everyone's on the spot the engineers the 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 lacquer cutter if anyone makes the slightest mistake you have to start the entire side over and uh and to make it even more interesting we had a whole a whole audience of about a hundred recording engineers watching the whole thing happen
0: <laughs> no pressure it was, part
2: of it, was, it was incredible right i mean and we and thankfully we rose to it and i'm so proud of that record i just i named it after the day it was recorded 11 12 21 <laughs> because it's like this a date which will live and infamy <laughs> <You know>? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it's always it's the little late. imperfections too that make it real
2: Oh, Rock and absolutely roll isn't
0: supposed to be perfect
2: no absolutely not and uh you know you want kind of a you know a fast and loose quality to it and but yet you know you want to what you want is to just have the uh the muscle memory and the sort of innate uh kind of physical ability to translate the emotion but once you get to that you know that just comes through rehearsal and things once you get it to where you hopefully want to get it then you're able to just forget a lot of things and get into strictly the feeling you're trying to convey and at that point whatever happens right even if there's little slip-ups here and there or whatever it just becomes part of the truth of the moment in in a and hopefully a a, a cool kind of way, you know, um, that's what I think we were able to get on, on 11, 12, 21. I think we got that. I'm really proud of that record too. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. You and I could nerd about music all afternoon.
2: We really could. Sounds like it. <laughs> I love it <laughs> well, I love it too.
0: Hopefully when, uh, you get all of these projects done and the vinyl and the digital stuff and you get back out on the road, whether it be a solo tour or back out on the road with Alice, uh, we'll see you soon.
2: Thank you. Uh, I look forward to it. Always great to see you. Always great to talk with you.
0: Great to see you, too. And congratulations on the collaboration with The Who. You can check off heavy metal Mongolian folk music off of your bucket list.
2: That's right. (laughs) You know, it really it's such a wild thing. I don't think it's really completely I don't think I've completely absorbed it yet. Just how how wild this really is. You know what I mean? The fact that this even happened. But I'm just so grateful for the reception to the record so far, man. We we uh, we hit radio and, and, and most second most added at Active Rock. Um I mean only Lincoln Park beat us, you know. I mean I'm that's that's wonderful. That's that's that is that is a great way to start. And uh, I just love all the I'm reading all the comments online and it's beautiful, really beautiful.
0: Well, have a great rest of your day and tell Thank you. tell your wife. The guitar is beautiful.
2: <laughs>
0: it's you. forever changed in my mind now that I know where the inspiration came from.
2: Well, she'll be happy to hear it. <laughs> and <can> hear it. <laughs> it was so
0: good to see you. Have a great rest of your day.
2: Thank you. You too.
0: There he is, the one and only William Duvall from Allison Chains. And if you want to check out the collaboration with The Who and their version of This Is Mongol, click the link for this episode's corresponding playlist in the show notes. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast that's filled with my guest music and all the other music that we referenced in the interview. You're also going to find all the links to find William Duvall online, to find Allison Chains online, and to find me online as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday, you get the Sit Rep. The Situation Report breaks down all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment industry updates in around five minutes every weekday. And you never know when we're gonna release a bonus episode. And a quick reminder, full-length episodes of the Mistress Carrie podcast are now available on my official YouTube channel. Get the details on all that and more at MistressCarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.